most people do not know about or even remember how the Reformation began. It's a pity because it is one of the most important moments in the church history and, believe it or not, has affected your very lives to this day. So let me give you a brief history of how it began. The year was 1517, and there was a monk who, on October 31st, took a statement, 95 statements, and pounded it on a church door because he wanted to start a discussion about indulgences. Now, there wasn't Facebook at that time. There wasn't the Internet. There was a church door. This is what professors did. This is what theologians did. They put statements on a door so it could be out in the public to discuss. But let me tell you about what the discussion was regarding. It was something called indulgences. So the Catholic Church believes that when you die, if you are saved, you first go to purgatory. So purgatory is a place in which your sins are purged, you are purified. Now, purgatory is not necessarily a nice place. According to Catholic doctrine, it is very similar to hell. The difference is that hell is eternal and that purgatory is not. So you might have to spend a thousand years, 10,000 years, tens of thousands of years in purgatory before you were purified enough so that you would be able to enter the heavenly place. This is purgatory. Now, if you're like any human being, you might think, that's a long time. Might not be eternity, but 10,000 years sounds like a pretty long time. Is there any way I could kind of reduce my time in purgatory? And you might go and say, well, look, I have done wondrous good deeds in my life. Or maybe I went on a crusade. Couldn't that help somehow take time off in purgatory? And here's what happened. The Pope said that, yes, you could get time off in purgatory if you have done these things, because what we can do as a church is we can give you some of the merits of Christ. So, in essence, think about this. Think about a bank account. In this bank, there are the merits of Jesus Christ, which are infinite. His merits do not end. There are also some merits. They are bountiful, but not infinite from the saints as well. And the church has the keys to this particular bank account to be able to transfer some of those merits of Christ or the saints to you so you could get time off in purgatory. Does this make sense? This is called an indulgence. Now, the thing about this is, what happens, salvation becomes a mixture of Christ, good deeds, and purgatory. You get the salvation, it becomes a mixture of those three things. However, not everybody could do all of those good deeds. They couldn't necessarily go on a crusade, but 
What if I sponsor part of the crusade? What if I give some money to the church to be able to help do those good deeds? Could I then also get an indulgence? And so in 13, excuse me, 1343, salvation became a mixture of Christ, good deeds, purgatory, and money. You can hear that there's a problem in there. Because what is the root of evil? It is the love of money. Money isn't the root of evil, but love of money. And so now corruption starts to get in there. Look, God does not need your money. But the Catholic Church said, well, we could use it. As a matter of fact, we've got certain pet projects. The Pope, the Cardinals, the bishops, they had certain pet projects. And if the tithes and offerings aren't enough, well, then how do we increase the money to be able to furnish and fulfill those projects? What if we sell indulgences? So they sold indulgences. And one of the things that they did ultimately was to say, well, not only can we, you can buy an indulgence for yourself, but you can buy, you can buy an indulgence for your loved ones. I mean, that makes sense, right? You, you don't want your wife or your brother or your sister or, or your children to spend any more time in purgatory than they have to, so why not buy something for them as well? So, this uh, was decreed in 1476 that you can buy indulgences for yourself and for others. And there was a famous person, Johann Tetzel, Johann Tetzel went around Germany selling indulgences, and he was a good salesman. He was a good salesman. This is in part his pitch. And you have to remember, he's in his full uh, ecclesiastical uh, vestments and everything. There would be pomp and circumstance when he would ride into a town, and he would say, Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends, beseeching and saying, pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. Do you not wish to? Open your ears. Hear the father saying to his son, the mother to her daughter, we bore you, we nourished you, we brought you up, left you our fortunes, and you are so cruel and hard that now you are not willing to, for so little to set us free? Will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay our promised glory? This was Johann Tetzel in his pitch. Now who can resist such a pitch, right? And by the way, this was not only a, he was really good, and he raised a lot of money. And it was not only good for the Pope, the princes also got a cut on it. And by the way, there was a sliding scale of indulgences too, because if you were poor and you couldn't, uh, you know, you didn't have much, well then we still give you an indulgence, so it was kind of like a sliding taxation scale. Okay? This was the state of indulgences. And along comes this guy, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was an obscure monk. He was a professor of theology in this town called Wittenberg. He was a studious man. And so he took a look at Scripture. And he read Scripture. And he knew Scripture really well. He, most likely, by the way, he had a photographic memory. That was, I mean, how good he was. And he went 
This is what Scripture says. I can't find indulgences in Scripture. So now there's a problem, you see, because the Pope had decreed this. And the question that really sparked the whole Reformation is, who or what has authority? Is it Scripture? Or is it the Pope and the Catholic Church? That is the spark of the Reformation. What is the source of authority? To whom do we submit ourselves? For Luther, he ultimately said it was this. He said that it was Scripture alone that is our sole source of authority. We here in the AFLC also say the same thing. We say we bear witness that the Bible is our only authentic and infallible source of God's revelation to us and all men, and that it is the only inerrant and completely adequate source of and norm of Christian doctrine and life. Scripture alone is our authority. In Latin, it would be sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. Sola means alone. So it is Scripture alone. But that word alone is very important as we go through this particular series because it means if you add anything else to it, it takes away from Scripture. You can't add, you can't subtract. God's Word stands alone. This is what Luther was uncovering during the Reformation. He didn't want to start a brand new church. He wanted to uncover what had been covered up. And as you're going to see later on as we talk about it, the gospel got covered up. That's what's at stake. That's what's at stake at Luther's day. That's what's at stake our day today. So today in our series, we are going to start with sola scriptura, but we are then going to go to sola fide, which is faith alone. We will do, do sola gratia, which is grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And soli di gloria, to God be the glory alone, or glory to God alone. This is at the core of the Reformation. And if you start to mess with any one of these, you lose the gospel. That's what's at stake. You see, sola scriptura, word alone. God's word has been under attack from the very beginning. Do you remember our series in the garden? The devil starts off with, did God actually say? It is always focusing on the Word of God, casting doubt on God's Word. And that doubt and attack comes from so many places. So now, with that in mind, let's go to Paul's letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 1. But understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, 
reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray with various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of truth. Whew! You would think, I mean, Paul's going on and on here, right? Well, let me give you the context why Paul is going on and on. Paul was writing to his protege, Timothy. Timothy was now a young man, but he was the pastor of the church in the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire. It, had a, it was on the western side of Turkey. It was right by the sea. So they had a lot of commerce come in. It was an epicenter. It was a very wealthy, business-oriented, but it also had one of the seven wonders of the world. It had the temple to Artemis, or the Romans say Diana. That was one of the seven wonders of the world. So you had pagan worship there. You had temple prostitutes. You had uh, In town was a huge brothel. They were known for their brothel. There was also great animosity towards Christians. And there was dissent within the church at Ephesus. There was a deceitful person who was excommunicated, but continued to spread his insidious teaching inside the church. Do you get this? So you can understand why Paul is giving such a warning. And he is giving such a warning because... Some of the worst heresies come from within the church. He says, look, you have to be on guard here. He says, here are some of the warning signs. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now, he wrote this a long time ago, didn't he? Does it sound also like our culture today? It does, doesn't it? And do you know why it sounds like our culture today? Because even though the times have changed, even though we have technology, even though we have all of this morality, human reality, and sin has never changed. So you will find these variations within and without. And Paul's telling Timothy, watch out for these people. Don't have that fellowship within the church with these people. Can you talk to them outside of, uh, and, and, and bef- befriend them, so to speak, and share the good news with them? You bet. That's what we're supposed to be, do. Jesus said you are to be in the world, but not of the world, right? He said all of these people, yeah, you, you can talk to them. You can share the gospel. But you want them leading Bible study? No. You want them leading worship? No. None of that. You've got to be on guard for that. He's warning Timothy, remember, this young pastor. Because what did Jesus say? A little leaven leavens the whole, doesn't it? You don't need much, you just need a little. Verse 6, he says, 
For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Here, I don't think he's literally talking about people creeping into women's homes, although that could certainly be part of it. But it is preying on the weak. It is preying on those who do not know better and causing them to sin. But there are also people within the church who have this appearance of godliness, who are always learning, but Paul says never arrive at the truth. Let me give you an example. Did you know last year, September 23rd, the world was supposed to end? Yeah, there was a fellow who calls himself a Christian numerologist who said, based on the book of Revelation, the alignment of stars in the constellation Virgo uh, showed that the world was going to end. But near the very end, towards September 23rd, he kind of softened. He said, no, it's going to be October 15th. Here we are. Do you know how many uh, end-of-the-world predictions have been again and again and again? And by the way, this so-called Christian numerologist I don't know if that's an oxymoron or something, but it is nonsensical. It does. There's no such thing as a Christian numerologist. Look, if people really wanted to know the truth, they would simply read Matthew 24. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Doesn't need to be more plain than that. Now, you might think, well, I wasn't taken in by that. Well, you have to know, people throughout the ages have redone their lives. Some people have died because of people proclaiming the end of the world. And when that happens, they also lose their faith when the world doesn't end. Now, you might go, all right, well, I'm fine. I don't, you know, not a big deal. But how many people have been taken in by various writers of the day? Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, right? That was popular a number of years ago. Do you know millennials get most of their theology on the Internet now, on YouTube? That's where they get their theology. People are also taken in by folks like Rob Bell, who is a pastor and now I believe is an atheist or maybe a deist. And he's still doing workshops and people still come to hear him. And there's also the book and the movie, The Shack. Now, there might be some good stuff in there, but man, there's some bad heresies that go in there. And a little leaven leavens the whole. So Paul is warning to be on the watch out for false prophets. And he says, here's how to deal with with false prophets and false teaching. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. He's saying here, Timothy, there are a lot of people who are going to go along to get along, but you, Timothy, but you, no, 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 not you, Timothy. You stay firm with what you have been taught and what you have, been, what you have learned from the Scripture. Now, we know from uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy that he was raised by his mother and grandmother. He also learned from Paul. Now, Paul could have ultimately said, look, your mother and your grandmother, listen to them. They're your authority. I'm your authority. He could have said all that and said, and yeah, read Scripture if you want. But his focus was on Scripture and Scripture being the authority. And by the way, in that day, it was the Old Testament that was the authority. He said this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, there's a couple little words in there I want to make sure we go over. And it is this, all Scripture breathed out. When we say all, the technical word here in the Greek is plenary. P-L-E-N-A-R-Y. It means complete, in every respect, absolute. So when we say scripture, all scripture, we mean from the very beginning to the very end. It means all of the historical, geographical, chronological, archaeological details. All of that. All scripture. And when we say breathed out by God, a lot of your translations might say is inspired by God. Now, the reason I'm going to go with breathed out, because it's a more accurate translation. Your translation might say inspired by. The trouble with that, people will say, well, Scripture is inspired by God, like we're inspired by a beautiful sunset. But that's not the sense that we have here. It says breathed out by God, coming from God's very Mouth. That's what Paul is telling, telling Timothy. All scripture comes from God's own word, his mouth. In Jeremiah 1.9, it says, Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Peter also said this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All prophecy, all scripture comes from God and God alone. You know, if you take a look at our gospel reading today, right? 
Our gospel reading. Jesus is being tempted. And the tempter, Diablos, the tempter, accuser, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, remember there's that if, right? We've talked about this in both Bible studies, by the way. If you are the son of God. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. There's an, the devil saying there's a physical temptation here. You be apart from God, you supply your own needs. Then the devil, verse 5, then the devil took him up to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. There's a temptation, a spiritual temptation, to have God prove himself. And again, verse 8, and again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kings of the world and their glory and said to him, all of these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. There's a temptation to forsake God altogether. But did you notice when we first read the gospel reading what Jesus did not do? He didn't say, hey, devil, come on. Let's uh, use some philosophy and logic and reason this out. Let's just have a sit down, a little cup of tea and talk about this. He didn't do any of that. He didn't say, well, this is my opinion. He said what? He said again and again, it is written. By the way, Jesus was quoting the Old Testament. He's saying it is written. And the way it's said, it means it stands written and will stay written forever. This is God's word. So Jesus himself referred to all of the Old Testament as God's word. It has meaning. It has power. It has power now. It has power in the future. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 said, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You see, Jesus met the assault of the devil, the assault on God's word, with God's word. Jesus knew that the written word was God's word and that God's word has authority over everything, including the devil. This is the understanding. So when you hear anybody proclaiming God's word, whether it be me, whether it be another pastor, priest, preacher, Bible teacher, anybody, you should be like the Bereans. You find the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. Paul was preaching in the synagogue. He, they listened to what he said. And then they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They checked them out. That's why I'm encouraging you all to bring your Bibles here to really know God's word. See, the choice that each, each generation needs to make, each person in this generation needs to make 
from the young to the old, is this. Is the Bible fully God's Word? Yes or no? That's the choice. And the second question is very much like it then. Is Scripture alone your sole source of authority for all Christian doctrine, which means Christian teaching and life? Yes or no? See, the distinction of Scripture being God's Word or not God's Word is critical. Because if you take away God's Word or trying to supplant it with something else, that you say the Exodus really didn't happen. By the way, there are churches with, that say the Exodus really didn't happen. That was just kind of mythology. When you start to do that, I guarantee you, here's what happens. You start to make God into your image. It becomes self-idolatry, which is what we covered actually in the education hour. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. See, many uh, mainline denominations have left Scripture behind a long time ago. I've mentioned before the ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, has left Scripture far behind. They also teach now that Christ did not have to die for our sins. The United Methodists have left Scripture behind. The Presbyterian Church USA has left Scripture behind. I mean, there are instances and instances that actually would just make you cry in despair. So let's bring this back to the Reformation. Does the Catholic Church hold those things like the ELCA or PCUSA? No, they don't. They actually do believe that this really is God's Word. So what's the difficulty? They would say, this is God's Word and has authority, and the Pope has authority, and the councils have authority. And they are equal authority. Martin Luther looked at what they were doing with the sale of indulgences and said, no, it's got to be God's word and his word alone. And this was a courageous stand because he was under a death threat, literally from the Catholic Church. And so what he did when he had to come before the council, he was asked, do you recant? Do you recant your writings? Do you recant what you've said? And he said, I am bound by the scriptures. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience May God help me. Amen. And some people have added, here I stand. I can do no other. Could you, would you say the same thing? Sola Scriptura. Amen.